You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So as Max said, I am not speaking today. Instead, a very good friend of ours, Trevor Brisbane, is speaking. Come on down, Mr. Brisbane. Uh, Trevor is a recent uh, D-Min grad from Claremont, which means he's got his doctorate in ministry, which means he knows more about ministry than even I do. If, can you believe that, right? What? How is that possible? He can work at Starbucks. You can work at Starbucks. Right, exactly. Uh, but he and his family um, were part of Central for, what, three years? What, what, two years. I say three. Uh, you know, that's fine. Felt like three. <laughs> I hate you. Uh, so, but they moved. They moved back to uh, the frozen north, aka Toronto. But he's back in town for some work stuff. But it's my pleasure to introduce him this morning. Great friend of the church. Um, he's going to be talking about victim blaming. So I'll let you take it from there. Thanks, Trevor. Thank you. Hey, thank you. Good morning. So good to be back in Los Angeles and California and can't come to California and, and not come to um, Central Ave. So thank you for um, letting me hang out this morning. I, I thought, what if we started um, with a bit of an experiment? I know this is kind of a few months old now, um, but let's go back there. So remember the whole Yanni Laurel debate? Um, if you don't know it, that's okay. What I want you to do is I want you to listen. We're going to play some audio and just listen to the audio. You'll hear the same kind of computer-generated voice say a few times this word. And just, just listen. What is it? that you hear. Um, so Bob, if you can hit that. Larry. 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 All right. Larry. Who heard Laurel? I know, I don't get, I don't get you people. Okay, thank you, thank you. Who heard Yanny? Okay. Who heard something else? Yeah. It, Yanny. I didn't hear that. <laughs> I, okay. I'll come back to you. Uh, what did you guys hear? Yes. Okay. You heard yes. What did you hear? So I know a great therapist that's uh, here in, here in LA. <laughs> no. Okay. So so interesting. We've some heard. Yanni, I heard Yanni. Some heard Laurel. Um, a lot of people heard Laurel. Some heard yes, and Aaron heard yes with a lisp. <laughs> right? But, but it's the exact same sound. We're all listening to the same word. Yet in a room this small, with this many people, we have vastly different understandings of what it is we heard. We literally heard different things. It's a little bit like, I've talked about this here before, but it's a little bit like if I were to say to you this morning, hey, it's, it's 30 degrees outside. When you come from Canada, that's an amazing warm summer day at 30 degrees Celsius. But when I say it here in California, hey, it's 30 degrees outside, you're thinking it's freezing cold because in Fahrenheit, that's really cold. So 30 degrees sounds very different depending where you're situated, depending on your geography, your context, your culture, all these kind of things. If I say, hey, I'm going to go watch the football game. If I say that in the U.S. or Canada, you know, we're thinking the L.A. Chargers or the Rams or the Dallas Cowboys or whatever, you know, that, that game. Where if, in, if you're in um, New Zealand or Australia or in the U.K. and you say, let's go watch football, you're thinking what we would call soccer, right? 
So words, the exact same words, can mean radically different things based on where we are situated, our experience, our culture, our gender, our geography. It all relates in different ways. So here's the thing, why is it that you, if you were to go to, you know, probably 90% of other churches this morning in Los Angeles or around um, North America, there would be um, a person at the front telling you, here is what the Bible means. Here it is. I mean, if, if we can listen to one voice and hear different words, if, if we're talking about climatology and, and have different understandings based on 30 degrees, or if we talk about a, a national pastime and, and have different concepts, why is it that we might not come to sacred ancient scriptures, hear words spoken, and one person hear one thing legitimately, another person hear something radically different, and then why do we fight over who's right? You know, who's right, Yanni or Laurel? Or Yeth? <laughs> you shared it, you made yourself vulnerable, and now it's mine for the taking. So, so who, who's right? So here's what I want to do this morning is um, I want to talk about how I've always heard that parable that Max read for us earlier from Matthew chapter 20. And then I want to take myself out of my own geography context and, and try and think and see and hear these words and teachings of Jesus from another perspective and see if they might come alive there as well. So Matthew chapter 20, it's long. I'm not going to read the whole thing again because we just did it, but it's the story of the workers in the vineyard, right? Um, Jesus tells this parable, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel. He says, kingdom of heaven is like a vineyard owner who goes out in his vineyard and he goes out at 6 a.m. and he hires a bunch of workers and he says, like, I'll pay you a denarius if you'll do this work for me, if you bring in the harvest. And then he goes back out at 9, and he invites more, and then at, at two other times, and then at 5 o'clock, finally, he goes out, invites the last batch, and they all work. And at the end of the day, he says, look, I want to pay those who came here at 5 p.m. I want to pay them first. And he pays them a denarius. We'll talk about how much that was in a little bit. But he pays them a denarius. And then the next people come, and he pays them a denarius. And then the people that were there from 6 in the morning, they come up, and they're thinking, oh, great. If everybody else is getting a denarius, we're probably going to get, what, like two or a denarius and a half? This is, this is going to be good for us, but no, they actually only get a denarius. And then the vineyard owner says, well, that's what we had agreed to. And they're like, but, but they only worked an hour. We've been working 10 hours. How come we get the same pay? And he's like, you know, why, why are you grumbling? You know, it's my money. I can do what I want with it. And so how I always heard this parable, or, or as, a, as an evangelical pastor, how I would have taught this parable for a number of years is probably two ways. First, I would have said, you know, this is sort of analogous of, of God's relationship with Israel and Gentiles, right? God calls Israel, has a covenant with Israel, with the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people first. And then later on, he says, you know what? My grace is so big and so expansive that I'm going to include all nations of this world in, in, in the covenant. And so um, historically, the Hebrew people had a bit of a, like, God, why not just us? Why are you sending grace to, to these people who aren't circumcised and all these kind of things? And so this is this kind of parable saying, no, no, God's grace is so big. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. God's love is for you. I think on a more sort of personal level, if we're bringing it down even closer, how I would have understood this 
um, parable is that, you know, me coming to God or coming to Christ and having a relationship with God, you know, it's very easy to look around at other people's relationship with God and begin to kind of evaluate them based on my own perception and say, well, you know, um, they don't give as much money as I do, so, you know, God should give me more love and grace and salvation and, and blessing, or they're not as spiritual or as holy or as, you know, whatever adjective you want to give. And so, so God, how come, how come they still get heaven? How come they still get grace? How come they get blessing and mercy and grace when I'm doing all this stuff and I'm working so hard for you and they're barely doing anything? Maybe they just, you know, prayed a prayer, accepted Jesus in their heart, and, 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 and they still get the same benefits. And this is Jesus saying, look, that's not about you. You know, you get what you get and don't get upset, as we would tell our kids. And I love everyone. And, and so just, you know, God's grace is bigger. And it's, it's a story about grace. We don't get what we deserve from God. God pours out mercy. So the challenge of this parable in how I traditionally would have understood it is, is clearly to the grumbling workers. It's the grumbling workers who have a lesson to learn from this story. They're the ones who resent the landowner's generosity to the latecomers. They're the ones who are stuck in the rules and can't see enough space for grace. The grumblers are the ones who are more concerned with merit than they are with mercy. The grumblers are the embodiment of resentment. They just don't like how generous God is. But we would preach that God's economy is grace-based and, and we don't get what we deserve, but, but all who come to God through Christ are welcome and rewarded with heaven or salvation or however you want to break it down. So don't grumble. You know, don't complain. Just be gracious or, or glad, thankful that God has accepted you. If you've spent your entire life working for God only to find that someone else comes to God on their deathbed, like, like celebrate that. God's fulfilled his promise to you. Don't worry what he's going to do to others. That's how I would have understood this parable for the longest of time. That's how I would have taught this parable as a minister for the longest time. Don't grumble about another person's grace. And, you know, there's part of that that's incredibly beautiful. That's like there's some lovely theological truths in there. But is it possible that there might be another way to hear this parable? Is it possible, like, if that's Yanni, there is a laurel also being spoken? Let's take a closer look just briefly at the characters in this parable. So there's this wealthy landowner, and how do we know that he's wealthy? Um, well, the text is, is pretty clear on that. They don't give us a lot of details about him, but we do know that he's wealthy. We know he's wealthy because he has a steward. Jesus says there's this wealthy, or um, this vineyard owner who has a steward. The only people who had stewards in the first century were people who had large estates. It was sort of like an executive assistant, a steward. Someone who can manage it, know what's going on, and just kind of take care of all the details. We also know he's wealthy because he owns a vineyard. You know, how many people in here own a vineyard? Right? Who owns vineyards? They tend to be the wealthy people, right? Same in the ancient world, because once you plant your grapes, it takes four to seven years before you can bring in a harvest. So you have to be putting out cash, you have to have enough equity where you can kind of just sustain and stay afloat for four to seven years. You have to have deep pockets to have a vineyard. So although it's not explicitly stated that he's wealthy, it'd be like if I told you a story about a woman who was getting on a private jet to go to Barbados with her butler, you know, I don't need to say, and she's really rich, because as soon as I say she's got a private jet and a butler, you know, oh yeah, yeah, no, okay, that's another level. This landowner has a vineyard and a steward, he's at that other level. We're also 
told that this, and, and this is subtle, but I think we, we want to pick this out, is that this landowner, as much as he's wealthy, is also extremely powerful. The two often go hand in hand, but Jesus kind of teases this out. There's a progression in this parable that I think would be easy to miss, but I think it's really significant. First progression. So the landowner goes out to hire the first round of workers. It says early in the morning. I'm going to guess around 6 because then he goes back out at 9 a.m. So say 6 a.m. we're told. And verse 2 tells us that there was an agreement between the vineyard owner and the workers that they would get paid a denarius. So he starts the day off with a wage agreement with his hired help. Let's, let's come to terms here. Let's, let's have an agreement. I'm going to hire you for the day, and you're going to work for the entire day, and I'm going to pay you this much. They have a wage agreement. By 9 a.m., this is verse 3, the landowner goes out to hire more workers. Only this time, he doesn't establish an agreement with the workers. Rather, he gives them a sort of take-it-or-leave-it ultimatum. He says, come work, and I will pay you what is right. He doesn't tell them what that right is. He doesn't tell them what he's going to pay them. He just says, look, you haven't been hired yet. It's getting later in the day. It's 9 a.m. The best workers have already been hired. If you want to work, come with me, and I'll pay you what's fair. So he starts the day, this landowner, with an agreement, a wage agreement, and then he just gives an ultimatum by 9 a.m. He goes out two other times, and then lastly we get to 5 p.m., and we see the fullness of this progression. He meets a group of workers who still haven't been hired, and this time he doesn't make an agreement with them. He doesn't even give them an ultimatum, come work and I'll pay you what's right, take it or leave it. Rather, he issues an edict or an order. He says to them, go now to my vineyard and work. It's 5 p.m. If these people haven't been hired yet, they're not going to get work. They're hungry. They don't know where their next meal's coming from. And so this wealthy landover comes, and, he, and he's got the power, the authority, to say, go to my vineyard now. Agreement, ultimatum, order. The landowner starts off treating his workers with dignity, but by the end of the day, he's powering over his workers, not even offering them the most basic wage agreement. So the landowner is this extremely wealthy elite who, with his money, has power to hire who he wants, when he wants, for what he wants. And with that power, he can order those who are powerless to do exactly as he desires. Harvest my crops and make me money, because I say so. Now, who are these workers? Historians tell us that they would have been a class of day laborers known as the expendables. One historian describes what life for an expendable was like as life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. These were people that were haunted by malnutrition and disease to the extent that they were unable to maintain marriages or even reproduce. It was subsistence living. It was like they could barely get enough calories in them to work, let alone provide for a family or even have the energy and the, you know, the bodily function for reproduction. 
It's believed that expendables were former peasants whose land had been taken over by the elites. So what would happen is you're a peasant, you're, you know, you're working class, you've got this little farm and you're just trying to make, you know, a living to feed your family. But you've run out of money because, you know, one of your kids have gotten sick, so you've had to use all your money to pay for medicine or, or to see a doctor. And so what you do is you need to plant seeds for the next seasons of crops. So you've run out of money, so you go to a wealthy person and said, hey, can I borrow a little bit of money? And they're like, sure, you can borrow money. I'll lend you money at like 100 or 200%. But if you don't feed your kids, your kids are going to die. So what do you do? You take the loan. And the only thing you have as collateral is your farm. So when you can't pay with the interest of 100%, the wealthy people kick you off your land, and then what do you do? They hire you back for a denarius a day to work the land that was once yours but is now theirs. That's who the expendables are. Or they're peasants who kept having kids because, you know, the crops were good. But a few years of drought means that the crops are really bad. You can no longer feed all your kids. So you actually have to kick some of your kids out of the house. Historians tell us that this is what happens. So, so these kids that you kick out become expendables. It is believed that life expectancy was somewhere between five to seven years once one became part of this labor class. It was, it was, it was hellish life. Expendables didn't have any inherent value within first century society. They existed for the harvesting and labor needs of the elites. Slaves were better off than the laborers. Slaves at least were like the property of the owners, so they sort of had like an inherent value. They would they'd want to take care of their slaves because they were worth something, not the expendables. Expendables were literally just that. All they had to offer was their animal energies. That's all they were wanted for. And in this parable, it becomes clear that there were enough expendables that when you get to 5 p.m. and the end of the day, there's still some hanging around. So there's, there's more expendables than there are jobs, even at harvest time. It's a desperate, desperate situation. And historians believe, it's well documented, that um, the, the denarius um, that was paid, and uh, like the poorest, most basic life, would have cost about half a denarius a day to, to sustain. If you have half a denarius a day, you can get enough calories to stay alive, to not be healthy, to, you know, to be malnourished, but to stay alive. And these guys were paid one denarius. So if they went two days without work, they were literally on the margin of death. And archaeologists have found documents where these elites would get together and they had a plan where they wouldn't hire the same expendable two days in a row. They wouldn't do it. Hey, I hired you yesterday. I'm not going to hire you back again today because they wanted to keep them as fragile, as, as desperate, as vulnerable as possible so they would be as exploitable as possible. The expendables stayed trapped in poverty, and the elites kept their money in their own pockets. They needed their vineyards harvest. They needed the labor, but refused to pay even a basic living wage. This is the context for which our parable, Matthew 20, gets told. It's an overtly exploitive and unjust system, and the landowner in Matthew 20 seems pretty complicit in it. 
What if we heard this parable about, not as, as, as a parable about abstract theological types who receive grace and then grumble about it, because so, so do other people. But what if we heard this as a parable about representatives from the polar extremes of a social economic system designed to benefit one end while exploiting and literally killing the other? Because we all know, as we heard it, this is a parable about fairness. And when we start with the insistence that the landowner is the God character, then we have to vilify those who grumble in order to justify the actions of the one we decided represents God. We say this is a parable how God doesn't give us what we deserve, but lavishes on everyone incredible grace. It's a wonderful theological truth. Yes to that. Only with a bit of context, what we discover is that that it might not have sounded like a story about lavish grace if you were an expendable living in the first century listening to Jesus tell the story. It's a story about an uber-wealthy landowner complicit in an economic system where whether you have a wage agreement or not, you were barely paid enough to survive. And it's this landowner who is involved in keeping the classes at odds, keeping the expendables, expendable, and the elites on top. So what if the grumbling isn't a complaint about the, the nature of divine love, but could it be a protest by those who've been stripped of all human dignity to begin with, who are crying out, this has to stop. Stop playing with our lives. Stop playing with our well-being. Stop this game and give us justice. Listen again to the landowner's accusation in verse 15 to those who are complaining. He says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? He's literally accusing the poorest people in society of being envious for wanting enough money to buy dinner. He's pitting poor people against poor people. I mean, it's classic victim blaming. You can work all day, sweat in my field, strain your back, your hands can be caked in my soil, all to make me even richer, and then I can turn around and use my money any way I want because I'm the rich one and you're the poor one. I'm the one with the power and you are the powerless. So stay in your place. Stay hungry, stay exhausted, stay poor because my wealth depends on it. This is exactly how oppressive systems are structured. This is exactly how oppressive systems work. Identify a social problem. Identify those most impacted by the problem and how, highlight how that problem makes them different. Identify a social problem, identify those most impacted by the problem, and highlight how the problem makes them different, and then define that difference as the problem itself. Problem. Inhumane wage to the labor class. Consequence. 
Their workers are frustrated and complaining as they spend their energy and bodies to barely get a day's wage. And the elites don't care. Power move. Call their protest envy and tell them not to be so greedy. Do you see that? Do you see what's happening here? Identify a social problem. Identify those most impacted by the problem and highlight how the problem makes them different and then define that difference as the problem itself. Problem. Central American nations are ravaged by drug cartels financed by North American addiction and consumer demand. Consequence. The poorest and most vulnerable families in places like Guatemala and El Salvador seek asylum in the U.S. because their lives depend on it. Power move. Take their kids away from parents because they made the choice to come here illegally. Problem. Aboriginal peoples have been shamed for their identity and colonized in the most inhumane ways. Consequence. Many feel a profound sense of loss and hopelessness within white European dominant culture. Power move. Insist Aboriginal peoples are lazy and no matter how much tax funding they get, they can't get their act together. Problem. The planet's resources are being exploited for profit at a pace that is literally unsustainable, sending the entire planet hurling towards extinction. Consequence, the most vulnerable species who have literally no say in our consumption patterns are being extinguished. Power move. People need jobs. Bring back coal. It's just the trade-off. Problem. Men have objectified women and essentialized them for their bodies. Consequence, women have endured countless degrading and dehumanizing comments and actions by men. Power move. Women shouldn't dress like that. Do you see how it works? This is how the status quo benefiting the powerful and the privileged is maintained. When the victims speak out, when the victims grumble, when the victims protest the way things are, blame the victims. Don't be so envious. Don't come here illegally. Don't waste the hands out. Don't mess with the economy. Don't dress that way. Don't grumble. And often the voices and complaints of the most vulnerable and marginalized are ignored and silenced and then accused for trying to be heard. What, what, if, what if this is Jesus turning a light on the entire messed up lie that is this kind of power play? Because what this world needs is, is not more systems of oppression. It's not more strong men to dominate and control by their wealth. This world is desperate for grumblers and protesters and men and women and children who will say, enough. Like, stop it. We, we see it. We see what's going on. We see what's happening here, and it's not okay. We won't participate. We won't stand by. We won't accept it's the way it has to be. 
I come out of a tradition <coughs> where you get rewarded for being nice, for always having a smile, for never raising the issues. Because if you raise the issues, then you're being dis divisive. This parable has been used by guys like me to keep victims silent. Don't grumble, don't complain, don't be divisive. What if what we heard here is Jesus calling out, no, 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 we need more grumblers. What if this is Jesus saying, what if, what if the movement was always supposed to be a, 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 an active movement, right? What if this was always meant to be a, a, a sort of a rising up, a subversive way to say these power structures that are dominating our world aren't going to go unnoticed by those of us who follow the way of Christ? What if this parable is telling some of us in here, we need to do some more grumbling? What, what, what does that look like? Do you remember the summer there was this episode, this, this Swedish woman, they were in Sweden, and, and an Afghani man was being deported back to Afghanistan where the Taliban was waiting, and, and sure enough, like, they were going to kill him. So this, this young woman, she was maybe in her 20s, was on the plane, and she just got up and she started protesting, just started talking, nothing violent, nothing scary, but the plane couldn't take off until all passengers were seated. So she just stood up and she grumbled to the point where the flight had to be canceled and this man's life was saved. We need some holy grumbling. I wonder if what this parable also is saying is that some of us need to do better jobs at listening to grumblers. Some of us especially us straight, white, middle-aged men. We need to hear the protests of the marginalized and oppressed. We need to sit with a person on the street corner and, and hear what's tormenting and troubling them. We need to listen to, to what the trans community is feeling and where they feel excluded. I need to hear how a person of color feels when interacting with the police in this city. You ever pull up beside um, a car at a stoplight, and like all the windows are tinted, and, and all you can feel is the bass, right? And it's like every other word is F this, F that, and N words, and, and it's like, you know, got three kids that are like, you know, don't listen, kids. Why do they want their music so loud? Because sometimes when you don't feel like anyone sees you or hears you, the only way you can get attention is to turn up the volume. And maybe sometimes we need to listen. I've often wished with every bit of my being that the Bible was this kind of wonderful collection of stories about how God's love is so simple and pure and true and, and it, you know, the Bible is a sort of chicken soup for the soul kind of experience. But the longer I stay in the tradition and the deeper I get into the scriptures, I'm confronted by these stories that haunt me, calling us as a movement into a way of Christ that is so unpopular, that will be divisive, but that calls out abuses of power. It says, no, me, I'm with Christ.
and she's always with the victim. I believe that the kingdom of God looks like that. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, in your mercy, we ask that you would give us faith and courage, hope, compassion, and creativity that we might see the spots, the events, the episodes where we can grumble, where we can engage the power structures of this world. Reveal to us where we are the power structures of this world and where we need to repent, where we need to change our ways. God, show us how to follow the Christ into the way of holy grumbling. For we pray in the name of the Creator, the Christ, and the Spirit of love. Amen. This morning we gather together now and we turn to the Lord's table. And it's this ancient tradition where Jesus established where he, he wanted to break down the power structures. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about the, the rich and the poor coming together around the table and the rich no longer having an exclusive table, but all peoples meeting around this meal. So on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and says, this is my body given for you. The same way after supper, he took the cup, he said, this is a new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. So this morning we eat and we drink gluten-free crackers and grape juice to remember the tradition that we are a part of, the movement that we belong to. It is a movement of subversive love in the name of Jesus Christ. All are welcome. All are welcome to this table. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. to say thank you. This was an awesome talk, and I really appreciated it because for two things. One, the audience, you pointed out that the audience that the story is directed to can really determine the meaning of it. And when I read this, I read it like a rich white dude, and so kind of like the typical evangelical thing, I'm putting myself in the shoes of the, really of the landowner and saying, you guys should be grateful, doesn't matter, I should, I can, grace is boundless, right? And it's my grace that I'm giving to you. So I've always read it from that point of view. But if you think of Jesus's audience as the day laborers at Home Depot or whatever, and they're thinking of it, the meaning totally changes. And I actually think there's a verse missing from the Bible in this, at the end here. Uh, because it starts out with, let me show you what the kingdom of heaven is like. And then it talks about this oppressive landover, landowner who's showing false generosity, let's say, right? I feel like there's a verse missing where Jesus says, let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he outlines this whole thing. And all the day laborers are like, screw that guy and his fake generosity. And then the verse that's missing is, and then Jesus pauses and looks at that guy and says, yes. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like, where that first 
asshole is going to be last and you're going to be first. Rise up. And if you look at the story from that audience point of view, I think it's, it's really eye-opening. So thank you. Yeah, I also just wanted to say thank you for the message. It really, really resonated with me. The one question that I had for you in your reading of this is that Jesus starts the parable by saying the, the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner. Um, and so reading this from the perspective of um, the day laborers, um, he's... It, I'm just wondering what your opinion on that in, in him relating to the kingdom itself like the oppressive power um, as, a, as a way of starting the parable and what message that is bringing or what he's trying to say through that line. That's a, that's a great question. And so, I mean, I'm not a biblical studies guy, but if, if, if I were a biblical studies guy, what I would probably say is, especially in Matthew's gospel, the, um, the kingdom of heaven is like shows up a few times. I've talked about a few other of those parables here before. And I think it sort of behaves like a, like a more like a title than, uh, remember in, in the, you know, the ancient Greek, there wasn't like punctuation and, um, you know, chapter and verses. So I think that serves sort of like a, a title over the passage. The kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. There was a wealthy landowner. Um, and so, so I think that would, in the, in the syntax, I think it's probably different than what it is in our modern translations. However, who, who's kind of put together former modern translations? Well, the first one was the King James, a wealthy landowner. So, so you know, all of a sudden, our, our history is skewed by wealthy, powerful people trying, who have an agenda, just like you said, Jason, to, to, you know, ensure that wealthy authoritarians can justify their victimization of other people. So I, I think that would be, yeah. Andrew. Um, I guess I have a lot of questions, but I can't ask them all. <laughs> uh, there, the, there are so many things about this parable that, um, that baffle me, but I think I need to do some of my own research and look into it more. Uh, I guess my main thing, though, is I had a little bit of an issue with your initial premise um, with the Laurel and Yanni thing. Um, and I know that's not the crux of the story, but um, I, I think that it does play a lot into the implications. So, like, for example, Laurel, a lot of us hear Yanni, a lot of us hear your, Laurel when we hear that word. But if we look, you know, if we deconstruct it a little further, the person who recorded that sound, had a word written in front of them. They spoke that word with the intent of that word being spoken. And now we hear it, we hear different things. So I, I know that from my perspective, whenever I hear that, I'm like, what is it actually saying? So if I hear Yanni and they wrote Laurel, I'm, I, I have to go, wait, there's something wrong with my ear scientifically in the way that I hear and I interpret that. Um, so I guess maybe in the, I don't have an answer for uh, how I'm connecting it to the story, but I guess my bigger question there is like, how do we, um, how do we contextualize if we find that the way that we interpret something or the way that it impacts us is wrong? Because like, you know, we're bringing up that we're seeing this from one perspective of, you know, rich white man or whatever. and. 
even in the context of the Bible, like this specific story, I don't know where it sits in the other context. And the other question I had is where, uh, specifically, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but how much is a denarius like actually worth? Like, would it would it pay for a, a week's wages? Would it pay for a day's wages? Is it like no wage whatsoever? I, I don't know. Those are just a couple questions to throw out there. So that'll be easy. Um, no. Uh, so the first part of that about the the you're asking questions about hermeneutics. The, you know, I don't mean to dodge it, but I mean ultimately it's there's a whole stream of philosophy. Jack Caputo, John Caputo has a great book called Hermeneutics. Out came out I think in the, just in the spring and um, really accessible and just even the first chapter is really helpful to kind of to kind of go there. So I won't dive deep into that. Um, yeah, and then the denarius thing here, I mean, which kind of circles back to the hermeneutics thing, there's not actually a consensus on how much a, a denarius is worth. And I could, I could pull out one historian who would say it's worth this much, and another historian who would say it's worth this much. Um, I, I think the historians I trust most tend to kind of, like I talked about, two days for subsistence living. Um, but yeah, I, you know, what, what that equals in dollars, I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't know what a day laborer makes here in Southern California. Um, any, any, anything else? Yeah. Oh, yeah. La ladies first. Yeah. Um, I was just gonna like respond to that, in that, because when you initially started talking, I had the same thought in that it was like, but there is a right and there is a wrong word that's being said. Like they actually had a word that was being said, and just like in this. When the actual, you know, when Matthew wrote it, there was a right interpretation. But at this point, and where I came to the conclusion that I came to after listening to your whole sermon was, well, but that's the point: is that we can't know what the actual intent was at the time because we can't go back in time and ask him. So the best that we can do is say, well, I'm going to interpret this to the best that I can with the resources that I have now. And the point is, is that yes, it may seem an on initial reading like the point is the, that, you know, the first way that we were kind of taught to read this or that I was certainly taught to read this, but just because that might seem like that's what's being said doesn't mean that that's 2,000 years later or whatever the correct way and interpreted the correct way. And I think just even the point of saying like it doesn't matter how much the denarius was worth, what it was worth was about two days worth and that this was the system that they were being, you know, employed under and all that. It's like, well that, you know, it doesn't even matter as much what the words are direct, if they're directly translated correctly or, you know, whatever, it kind of doesn't matter. What matters was this whole understanding of the system and that that is then how we should interpret it or how I would like to choose to interpret it, even if it may seem like, oh, but that might not be the original, you know, that might not be the point. The point is that we can't know that because we live now and not then. I think, I think Emily, what you say is, is so helpful. To get to what is the right interpretation, I think is a tool used by oppressive systems to keep us from actually doing anything because we just keep debating what's the right interpretation. I no longer ask what's the right interpretation because I don't know, we, we will not know. What's the, what's the most helpful interpretation? What's the most life-giving? What's the most promising um, interpretation? I think is, is maybe the, the more Christian question if, if 
you would. And one more and then we'll, we're good? We're good? Okay.